Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. We can bring music and film and theater and dance into the museum in order to create that opportunity for a broader perspective on the visual arts. That's Susan M. Taylor, who has served as the Montaigne McDaniel Freeman Director of the New Orleans Museum of Art since 2010. Since her tenure began, she has put NOMA at the center of the conversation about how nonprofits build a community while positioning the museum as a critical resource among the cultural offerings in New Orleans. She's developed ambitious exhibitions and acquisitions initiatives with a renewed emphasis on education programs serving schools from pre-K to 12th grade. In 2019, the museum opened a six-and-a-half-acre expansion of the Sydney and Walda Besthoff Sculpture Garden, building on the success of the previous five-acre garden. It is now widely regarded as one of the top sculpture gardens in the world, featuring over 90 sculptures by a distinguished roster of international artists. Prior to moving to New Orleans, she led the Princeton University Art Museum, and while serving as director of the Davis Museum and Cultural Center at Wellesley College, she led Pritzker Prize-winning Spanish architect Rafael Moneo's expansion, his first commission outside of Spain. Susan, welcome to Artscoping. Thank you, Max. It's great to be here. I'm glad to have you. And you began directing museums at the tender age of 29, which seems impossible, and you're among the longest-serving female directors in the Association of Art Museum Directors. Your most recent job, which you've been in for a decade, is in the New Orleans Museum of Art. You started five years after Hurricane Katrina, which caused 1,800 deaths and $125 billion in damage. I'm interested in knowing what challenges you inherited at that time from its lingering effects. It was a series of challenges, and I think it begins with the city itself. New Orleans was a recovering city that was also redefining itself. And included in this post-Katrina reshaping of the city was an acknowledgement, I think, of the importance of the cultural economy. Although that has always been the case with New Orleans, it became even more imperative as the city redefined itself as a destination. And I think it was up to many of us to define what that is. A city in the middle of financial recovery, structural recovery, and then a place where the culture bearers had an extraordinary impact on the history of the city. In addition to that, I arrived the weekend of the oil spill of 2010 and still recovering from 2008, the financial crisis. It was a time of ongoing challenges in addition to Katrina, and we inherited a full list of Katrina repairs that had yet to be addressed. It was a challenge. But you didn't turn around and head back home. You, you made the move, you stuck it out, and you've made such a difference there. And I'm interested for your colleagues around the country who have yet to experience that type of succession of natural disasters. Do you have any lessons to share about preparedness or about coping with these unforeseen challenges? Well, I would have to say that the disaster you plan for is not necessarily the disaster that you get. We have experienced a number of natural disasters, and each one impacts the institution, the physical plant, the staff, the collection in different ways. It's critical, I think, to have a serious plan. And I would also say that the preparation is just as stressful as the event itself. So this past summer, 
the summer of 2020, we had at least five hurricane warnings. So that means that we had five potential disasters to plan for. Susan, am I right that there are no basements in New Orleans? That's correct. And so art storage, presumably, although you can't divulge everything, is not in the basement. It is no longer in the basement. The New Orleans Museum of Art, a hundred-year-old building, had basement storage before Katrina. All of that was moved after Katrina and occupied several galleries on the upper floors until we had an offsite storage facility ready to receive the collection. Offsite storage has a different meaning for a museum like the New Orleans Museum of Art in that the building has to be prepared for all eventualities. Offsite storage means secure against wind, rain, flooding, all of the other events that go along with a hurricane. It's interesting, though, internationally, New Orleans enjoys such an amazing reputation. And I think most people don't first think of the challenges you've described. They think of its rich cultural history. How, before the pandemic, did the museum seek to attract international visitors interested in more than beads and excessive drinking? We work very closely with the New Orleans Tourism and Marketing Authority to define the cultural traveler for the city of New Orleans. So New Orleans is a place that attracts a lot of conventions and people who are interested in the fantastical, the the parades, the beads, as you mentioned. And there are also cultural travelers who actually spend more time in New Orleans and spend more money given that they are committed and interested in exploring the cultural heritage and history of the city, the architecture, as well as the art. So that is a very different component of our visitorship that is and was equally engaged with the museum and intrigued and excited about a visit. The other component is to attract and present exhibitions of a caliber that would be of automatic interest and focus. What we have found with our international travelers is that a visit to a new city must encompass a visit to the city's museum. Well, meanwhile, the pandemic has laid siege to cultural institutions around the world. How have you navigated its effects? We've made several adjustments with the pandemic. First, initially, we closed our doors on March 16th and pivoted to an online presence that allowed for a safe experience for the museum. We had audiences who were eager to experience our collection and our programs, and we used multiple points of access on our website, including virtual exhibitions through our partnership with Google Arts and Culture, which we established in 2016. And because we prioritize creating points of access digitally during the closure, I think people were eager to return to the museum once they were able. And one of the first experiences that they were able to have in person is visiting our sculpture garden, which was expanded recently and currently encompasses over 12 acres of art and over 90 sculptures. How do visitors deal with a sculpture garden differently from how they might have in the interior of the museum? There's less fear, of course, about passing on the virus. Do people come in groups? Are they in couples? Are they coming on their own? 
We urge them to safely distance, stay together, masking is required. We provide masks if people don't arrive with them. We have a designated route so that we minimize interface with other visitors. And of course, spread over 12 acres allows people to safely physically distance. I think for many people, the experience of a sculpture garden can also demystify the museum experience. They have an opportunity to engage with works of art in a natural environment and are able to experience the intention or the inspiration of the artist in ways that they wouldn't necessarily be able to inside a museum. So there is a certain amount of freedom and access that our visitors enjoy in the sculpture garden. Right. And they don't have to be quiet, too. (laughs) (laughs) They do not have to be quiet. Right. (laughs) That's cool. Now, Susan, women today make up a healthy percentage of the directorships of leading art museums, but you have very few peers at leading encyclopedic or municipal museums. Is that starting to change? I believe so. There's a wonderful new director at the National Gallery in Washington, Kaywin Feldman, a new director at the Seattle Art Museum, a new director at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. So I see that as changing. I see it as an opportunity for art historians and scholars who are women to engage more fully in the life of an encyclopedic institution. But boards of trustees were more prone to hire guys. So you're saying that's not as much the case anymore. Well, I think one has to look at the composition of boards these days. Uh, There are a number of boards that obviously think very carefully about their composition to include women of diverse backgrounds and interests and professions. And I think that also impacts how they look at a search and how they look at candidates for a position. As the director of a municipal art museum versus a university museum, for example, you face myriad challenges that don't typically face directors of college museums or contemporary art museums. How much time do you spend working alongside civic leaders or the mayor's office or businesses in town? Well, we consider ourselves an anchor institution in the city of New Orleans. So partnerships are critical to our success and calibrating programming in order to serve this varied constituency. We have a very close working relationship with City Hall. It started when I arrived with then Mayor Mitch Landrew, who understood the importance of the cultural profile of the city of New Orleans and who spoke incredibly eloquently about the possibilities for that in a city. So I think that a close working relationship with the mayor has been the modus operandi for me at NOMA, as well as city council. We have a very strong city council that's very much involved in the day-to-day operation of the city and represents a variety of constituencies of New Orleans and who have a vested interest in the success of the museum. So my relationships with city council members are very close as well. We also have a tremendous opportunity to work closely with the tourism industry, as I mentioned earlier, to advance exhibitions and exhibition programming to a broader audience that provides content to push out to visitors and potential visitors to the city. Our relationships are long and deep and represent our commitment, first and foremost, to the people of the city of New Orleans. And I'm sure you have help from your board in these relationships as well. 
Absolutely. Our board represents a number of different aspects of the city, both generationally, demographically, and also in specific areas where the museum has the potential to impact the lives of our citizens. So we have people who are very engaged in politics, who are very engaged in education, in social services. All of these people help us connect more fully with the priorities of the city and the opportunities that we have to engage with them. In addition, we have a representative of the city on our board, as well as our city council representative who attend all of our meetings. So there is a direct relationship between us and these other entities. We also have very strong relationships with the educational institutions in the city, and those are also represented on our board. Susan, in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, you promptly addressed concerns about racial diversity. Can you share some of the strides that you and your board and staff have made since then? Sure. We took the mandate following George Floyd and other social unrest very seriously. We immediately turned inward, looking at our own institutional culture and also engaging with the board in serious conversations about how we could address the issues that were raised as part of the critique of the museum, as well as how we could move forward as an institution together with the board in order to become a truly anti-racist institution. We did that by putting forth what we call our Agenda for Change, which outlined a series of initiatives that we undertook immediately following the death of George Floyd, and that we have continued to work on over the last several months as well. The Agenda for Change is on our website and is updated periodically with every new initiative that we undertake. And I have to say our board was extraordinary in their commitment to diversifying the board. We were able to recruit new board members who accurately reflect the profile of the city and at the same time provide a range of expertise that has been important and useful to the institution. We've also hired a outside HR firm to look at our policies and practices in order to redefine what they are and to update them if they were necessary and to ensure that we had an equitable and inclusive process for hiring and onboarding. That will become extremely important in the next several months as we rebuild the staff of the institution. We also engaged our staff and our board in training securing the services of outside facilitators, the People's Institute of New Orleans, which stakes its claim as one of the foremost anti-bias training institutes in the country. We have hired them to work with our staff. We engage the Racial Equity Institute to work with our board. I think it's safe to say that the awareness has increased dramatically and has resulted in a change in our culture that will continue to improve the institution as a whole. Additionally, in recognition of the role that an art museum can play in supporting artists, local artists, BIPOC artists, we committed the rest of our 2020 acquisition funds and our 2021 unrestricted acquisition funds to the purchase of both local and national BIPOC artists. This is a first step towards a larger reexamination of our collecting 
practices. And I should note that for an encyclopedic museum to devote acquisition funds to contemporary art is a meaningful statement. You have long championed the history of art alongside the art of our time. How would you describe the responsibilities of museums like NOMA in balancing a commitment to history alongside a commitment to contemporary art? Well, I think the past informs the present always. So the past is a mechanism for inspiration and for responsiveness. In our world, the history of art spans 5,000 years or more, and we have an obligation to present aspects of that collecting practice and that history to our public. Our permanent collection galleries are regularly reinstalled. The opportunity for artists to engage with historical material can bring new interpretations and new insights into our collection. I think it's important that for us at NOMA to recognize the strengths of our collection, build on those strengths, and also create opportunities for engagement in the special exhibition realm. That involves us looking at the arc of an exhibition season over a period of time, two years, three years, to ensure that we are adequately focusing on the scholarship necessary to continue to engage our historical collections and at the same time providing opportunities for contemporary artists to experience the collection and provide new insights to our public who may not come to the collections in the same ways that others do. I see them working hand in hand when artists are working on creating works for the future or for the future present. I think that that is an exciting moment in the life of the artist and the trajectory of the artist's practice. Would you say that a lot of encyclopedic museums are devoting more time and more energy to contemporary art than in the past? And is that because they fear that local audiences are running out of interest in the history of art? Or what, how do you explain that? That's potentially part of it. I think that encyclopedic museums are trying to find a way to engage current audiences, younger audiences who may not be as steeped in history or as interested in history. And so perhaps the challenge of an encyclopedic museum is to animate that history by engaging with contemporary issues in order to demonstrate its relevance, both for the present and for the past. Encyclopedic museums are trying to find ways, whether it's through exhibition or programming. We call ourselves a nexus of cultural activity because we like to think that we can bring music and film and theater and dance into the museum in order to create that opportunity for a broader perspective on the visual arts. I think museums are using all of these strategies to further engage their publics. Let's pull one of the encyclopedias off the shelf because you mentioned 5,000 years of art, and that's the world of antiquity. You were integral to changing the guidelines of the Association of Art Museum Directors on collecting ancient art. What impact do you think it's had on the field and on the art market since that change took place in 2008? Well, I think it's tamped down the market for antiquities. I think it's made collectors more reluctant to collect in that area, especially if they have the intention of gifting their works to an institution. 
provenance has become the leading factor in making determinations about acquisitions of antiquities. And provenance indeed has become a field in museum practice. There are a number of museums that employ full-time provenance researchers and or opportunities for people to come in to conduct provenance work. I think that has changed the field enormously. But I think overall, it has diminished the market. It has caused collectors to think more carefully about what they will add to their collection. And it has created a field of provenance research that is now flourishing. Back to your sculpture garden, which I visited for the opening and is such a spectacular contribution to the city, but also to the nation as one of the great sculpture parks now in the public realm. Could you share any of the difficult decisions that you faced in that colossal enterprise in making it a reality? Well, there were many factors that went into the decision to expand the sculpture garden. Um, First and foremost was a desire to create a a 21st century equivalent to the original garden, which was artists or works produced in the 20th century. So that was our first challenge to narrow the focus on this expansion to accommodate that principle. I think the second challenge was to redefine what a natural landscape is and an indigenous landscape, a landscape native to Louisiana. So the efforts on the part of our landscape designer, Reed Hildebrand, was to create a language of landscape that allowed us to understand the original configurations in Louisiana. Lagoons, bayous, swamps, live oaks, all of those things create an impression that allowed us to explore new opportunities for citing works of art. So that was the second challenge. I think another challenge was the fact that we took on commissions for the first time in this landscape and in this sculpture garden. So we commissioned three artists to do work specific to their site, specific to New Orleans. And that was one of the most satisfying experiences that I think I've ever had. And that I think resulted in some spectacular pieces for the garden. We commissioned Ellen Zimmerman to do a bridge that incorporates the landscape of the Mississippi River. Maya Lynn was commissioned to do a piece also reflecting the route of the Mississippi River from north to south. And then Teresita Fernandez was commissioned to do a wonderful piece that anchors the courtyard. So three women, three commissions, three outstanding outcomes that I think speak to our interest in supporting contemporary artists and our belief in the inspiration of landscape to guide commissions. Susan, you were president of the Association of Art Museum Directors in 2014-2015, and we want to be behind the curtain with you. What's it like to oversee an organization like that? The challenge is to represent many different voices in the museum field. The organization is comprised of encyclopedic museums, uh, contemporary art museums, university museums, museums in Canada and Mexico. So all of these interests converge in many instances, but also diverge. And I think the challenge is to serve the 
constituencies in the best possible way. I was also director at a time when there was a generational shift in museum directors, and a number of museum directors retired that year. And I think the obligation on my part was to acknowledge their service and celebrate their accomplishments and also be able to pave the way for future museum directors and to be able to celebrate the possibility of what a new generation of museum directors can bring. You walk the fine line of celebrating the past, but also engaging with the future. The other issue that was very important was the acknowledgement of the great strides that the city of Detroit made in having taxpayers support and commit to the Detroit Institute of Arts. That opportunity for AMD to celebrate that accomplishment was an important part of our program honoring Graham Beale when he retired. I also think that we were able to highlight and advance the profile of our colleagues in Mexico. During my time as president, we had an annual meeting in Mexico City. The opportunity to celebrate their accomplishments and their collections and their programs was one that was extraordinarily important as we continue to define AAMD as a North American organization. You've given us some real insight into the manifold challenges that face a director. And I'm pretty sure you've helped recruit some younger people to be interested in following in your footsteps. So thank you very much for making time for us today. No, it was great to talk with you, Max, and to revisit some of the most challenging and interesting aspects of my time in New Orleans and beyond. We've been speaking today with Susan Taylor, the Montine McDaniel Freeman Director of the New Orleans Museum of Art. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping. If you liked what you heard, leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts, which helps other listeners find their way to us.